0: friends, we've come here to our final Sunday in our Easter sermon series where we have been looking at what it means to be Easter people. And if you've been listening over the last several weeks, you could probably repeat it back to me by now, right? That to be Easter people is to be people who see the world not as it is, but as it could and should be. That we are people who live with a sense of hope and possibility. So exploring that theme, we have been making our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In that first week, we talked about how there's this grand story that's unfolding, that grand story that began the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb, and that we all have a place in that story. And then we heard about the new humanity in Christ, that the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been torn down, and now it is our call to go out into the world and to tear down those own walls of division and enmity that exist in our own time. And then we heard Paul's urgent appeal to unity, not a false unity that is simply the absence of conflict, but a unity that is marked by peaceable difference in engaging the things that matter most and in bearing with one another in love. And then last week, we were told to put on the new self, that to be Easter people is to be in this constant state of transformation, of orientation and reorientation of our lives around Christ. We have not read every chapter and verse in Ephesians, but we have hopefully started to be able to get a picture of what it means to be Easter people. And now we have come to this final section of Paul's letter. It is one of Paul's most vivid descriptions, one that if you grew up in the church, you probably heard it at vacation Bible school, or perhaps it was on the flannel graph when you were in Sunday school, to put on the full armor of God, Paul says, Fasten the belt of truth around your waist, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The shoes on your feet are, for what, are whatever you have for proclaiming the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We can picture this as Paul describes it to us, a soldier slowly putting on his armor and preparing for battle. But it's a, a somewhat strange image to me. It's somewhat strange that Paul would make reference to to a set of armor that would look like the Roman occupying force that was at times hostile to that early Christian movement. It was Roman soldiers dressed in that kind of armor that crucified Jesus. The Ephesians would have been used to seeing soldiers like that walking through their city streets, keeping law and order. They were an omnipresent reminder of who was in charge. Stranger still to me is that Paul has been writing throughout his letter about how Christ has won this great victory, that Christ is seated in the heavenly places, Paul says, and yet here he is preparing us for battle. What are we to make of all of this? We typically go in two directions with passages like this. One of the unfortunate realities is that from throughout Christian history, there have been stories like this that have Uh, informed us that we are to take up arms and to wage war in the name of the gospel. There's been crusades and holy wars, manifest destiny, a history of colonialism that is still playing out today. We've seen that in the news this past week as that war between Israel and Palestine intensifies. But notice what Paul says. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces it seems that Paul has a very different sort of battle in mind. And so the second direction we typically, typically go is to see this simply as a, a battle taking place in some otherworldly place. But as we dig a little deeper, there's a third direction. That's the direction I want to go this morning. Someone once said that whenever we read Paul, we have to keep in mind that we're reading someone else's mail. And because we're reading someone else's mail, Paul is also writing in a very specific context. Even in more general letters like Ephesians, where he's not addressing specific church issues, Paul is still writing within a very specific framework. And Paul lived within a certain worldview that held certain assumptions. And one of the aspects of that worldview was what was known as the principalities and the powers. He refers to them here simply as the powers or the cosmic powers. And we've been, as we've been reading through Ephesians, we've actually seen them come up a few different times. They're kind of always hanging out in the background of Ephesians. What are the principalities and the powers? This is not something that Paul invented. It was a familiar concept to both Jews and Gentiles that lived at that time. The belief was that there were powers that influenced life on earth. We tend to read them as simply spiritual realities in our modern world. But in the world of the New Testament, there was no bifurcating of sacred and secular. The powers and the principalities existed within the real world. There was an understanding that there was an animating force that existed behind every human structure. For us as modern folks, the powers and the principalities refer to the realities of culture, politics, and social existence. The late scholar Walter Wink spent his life studying the New Testament understanding of the powers and the principalities, and Wink says that the powers and the principalities in the New Testament refers to all human social dynamics, institutions, belief systems, and traditions. So these powers, according to Paul, were created by God and meant to serve God's good purposes and intentions in the world. That Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, has this beautiful hymn where he talks about how all authorities, everything that exists on earth, individual lives, structures, everything exists and was created by and for Jesus. They were made to serve his love, justice, and mercy. Political authority, for example, was given to serve the goodwill and the purposes of God. But what Paul says is that these powers have been corrupted and co-opted by sin. So the powers that exist, our human structures, our cultural, political, and social lives are all part of the good creation of God, meant to serve God, meant to be an avenue of God's love and mercy in the world. But they are fallen and they no longer serve God's purposes. So for Paul and those early Christians, it was not just our individual lives that needed redemption, but it was also everything else around us, our collective lives. And we see that this brokenness is revealed in several ways. One of the ways is the the way that nations, sometimes including our own, establishes itself by some sort of divine mandate, as some sort of ultimate authority. And in doing so, we confuse our own national self interests with God's cause. Don't forget that Paul wrote in the shadow of the world's most powerful empire, an empire that claimed to have made peace on earth, And that peace, of course, was won and maintained through violence and oppression. The empire that was run by Caesar, who claimed divine authority, all of those titles we give to Jesus, Lord, Savior, Prince of Peace, those were titles that Caesar used of himself and others used of him. So the brokenness of the powers is revealed in the ways that nations seek to set themselves up as some sort of ultimate authority, claiming some sort of divine mandate. If God's goodwill and purpose is that everyone in our world has enough to eat and has enough to live, then we can see the brokenness of the powers revealed in the fact that there is poverty in our world. And it is held up by the sort of animating idea, the sort of powerful myth, that the poor are simply lazy or leeches on the system. The idea that poverty can simply be solved through more personal responsibility. If God's good will and intentions is that there is a new humanity in Christ where we are all united together in love, then rhetoric and policies that dehumanize certain groups of people reveals the fallenness of the powers. Rhetoric surrounding immigrants as inherently violent or more recently very real policies of voter suppression disenfranchising certain groups of people reveals the brokenness of the powers. These are all manifestations of what Paul calls the powers. And as we have been talking about what it means to be Easter people, people who see the world not simply as it is, but as it could and should be, then the powers are the people, the institutions that are very much invested in the world as it is. And these are the powers that Jesus engaged in throughout his life. These are the powers that are always hanging out in the background of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And these are the powers that Paul believes Christ overcame in his death and His resurrection. Paul says that these are the powers that we are engaged in a struggle against because what Paul believes is that though the powers are fallen now and they do not serve God's goodwill and intentions right now that they are in fact redeemable their redemption is part of what it means to create the world as it could and should be and they are redeemed as we put on the full armor of God and engage in that struggle. Because for Paul and those New Testament Christians, the good news of the gospel is so much bigger than just our own individual lives and our own individual salvation. Certainly that's not excluded, but the gospel includes the redemption of all things. And this happens as we engage in the struggle. It is true, as Paul says, that Christ has overcome these powers, but it is also true that they are still holding on. Christ was raised, but Pilate still sat in the governor's mansion I read somewhere this week. Christ was raised from the dead, but Caesar still declared divine authority. Christ was raised from the dead, but the poor are still oppressed. Christ was raised from the dead, but there is still the rhetoric and structures of enmity in place. Christ was raised, but the powers are still holding on. And that is why Paul prepares us for battle, because the struggle continues. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, he says. We heard all about God's power all the way back in chapter 1. It's power that was at work when God raised Jesus from the dead. That is resurrection power. It's power that brings life and wholeness. It's power for justice. It's love power and salvation power. That is the power Paul tells us to be strong in. That is the power that is at work in us as we put on the full armor of God. And notice that. It is God's armor and not our own. Paul knew his Bible. In Isaiah 59, God is imagined and pictured as putting on this same sort of armor. God puts on righteousness like a breastplate and helmet like salvation. And God comes to redeem God's people. God arrives to set the world right. And now, Paul says, we are to put on that same armor. We work with God in the redemption of the world. We who see the world as it could and should be, we Easter people, work to make the world align with that vision, that we are engaged in the struggle alongside of God. Martin Luther King, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, said, Human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. That image of us putting on the armor of God is the image of us joining God and seeking the redemption and the remaking of the world. Because we are co-workers with God, as Martin Luther King says. We are co-workers with God in bringing that message of Easter into all places of our world. We are co-workers with God in helping to create the world as it could and should be. But we don't go unprepared. We go dressed in the full armor of God. The belt of truth is fastened around our waist. The the truth that we carry is that each one of us is loved and welcomed Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, gay or straight, male or female, we all have a place in the story that God is writing. As Easter people, we wear the breastplate of righteousness. In the biblical perspective, righteousness and justice are interchangeable terms. So we are people who seek justice in the world. The shoes that we wear are for making peace, a reminder that Paul is envisioning a different sort of battle, not a a battle of conquest, but a battle for making peace. The shield of faith is our unwavering trust that the vision of the world as it could and should be is not a fool's errand. It is a worthy pursuit. It is trusting that we can actually, with God, make that world possible. It protects us from those powers that be that will say that all that is is all there can ever be because we know that there is something better and that there is something else that is possible. We go with the helmet of salvation, the word of God, a story to tell of God's redemption and recreation. As we engage the powers, we are well equipped to join the struggle alongside of God. The resurrection power of God is at work in us to create the world as it could and should be. We have seen the world as it could and should be. And now it is time for us to go and to make that world as it could and should be. To put on the full armor of God and to join God, to become co-workers with him, to be Easter people. Thanks be to God. Amen.